Hello, Psychologia listeners. This is Amaya. Before we start talking about cults and the persuasive practices used to seduce new cult members, I want to remind you about something that's going on right now here at the podcast. If you're a regular listener or you follow us on social media, then you know that we are currently running a Kickstarter campaign to fund our second season. Our goal is to make this podcast a consistent and regular project with better sound, more variety, and a whole series of new forensic and psychology-related topics, and we need your help. We are about halfway through our 30-day campaign, which will end on August 5th, and we are heading towards the finish line, but we need your support to get there. We have a whole bunch of great rewards, including a limited edition Psychologia pint glass, a handwritten thank you postcard, the chance to hear your name on the first episode of season two, and even a shot at choosing an episode topic. I'm tempted to tell you to pause right now and make your pledge, but I know how annoying that can be, so instead I will say, please, when you finish this episode, go to our website, psychologiapodcast.com, or search for Psychologia on Kickstarter, and watch our little video, and then pledge what you can. Then, tell your friends, share the campaign on Facebook, and get the word out so we can make an even better second season with new topics like child criminals, cocaine medicine, serial killers, or the psychology of death. This is the second and final episode of our summer mini-series, and we're counting on you to make another season possible. Whether you can give $1, $10, or $1,000, your pledge will make a difference, and we thank you so much in advance for your support. Okay, on with the show. Human beings have many drives. Two of our primary drives are the need to survive and the desire for pleasure. In order to satisfy both of these needs, it is often necessary to convince others to do what we want or to see things as we want them to be seen. So, how do we go about making this happen? How do we get what we want from others, even when they don't agree with our way of thinking? We do this through a symbolic process in which communicators try to convince other people to change their attitudes or behaviors about an issue through the transmission of a message in an atmosphere of free choice, also known as persuasion. We covered this topic in depth last episode, but today we're gonna narrow the focus. One of the many applications of research about persuasion is the role that persuasion may or may not play in cult indoctrination. This was particularly explored during the 1980s and 1990s because of the fervent anti-cult backlash that followed the high rate of cult activities in the preceding decades. Whether or not cult leaders used coercive persuasion was hotly debated, and looking through the psychological literature shows that psychologists came up with many different ways of explaining how successful cult recruitment and indoctrination works. Today, we're not going to look at the psychology of cult leaders or the long-term effects of cult life, because we're saving those for a future episode, but instead, we're going to look specifically at the use of persuasion in cult indoctrination, or step one, of building a cult. Welcome to Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. Persuasion and cults go hand in hand. 
Campaigns to convert people to religious and political movements have always used control techniques in modern and historical times. During the Spanish Inquisition, for example, the persuasive message, convert or be burned, was used by the Catholic Church, which is a pretty convincing argument, to be sure. Totalitarian governments often use extreme and draconian measures to maintain control, like encouraging family members to spy on each other and report any actions or beliefs that don't conform with the government's views. These methods have been recorded as far back as first-century Palestine and during Europe's Reformation. Similar events took place among the Puritans of the early Americas and can be seen today in the Amish culture. But modern-day cults are much more subtle in their approach. The main difference between these historical groups' behavior and the behavior of modern cults is the refinement of the technique. Today's cults practice depersonalization, de-individualization, and the search for happiness with more tact. This can be seen in the actions of Charles Manson and Jim Jones, who lured their followers with promises of great joy, then systematically cut them off from the outside world and made them dress and live so similarly that they lost their sense of self. These kinds of tactics can be seen in older cults, but modern groups have an advantage. They can use the current understanding of the power of persuasion. Uh, planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. Now, that's a pretty major statement. One persuasive method used by cult recruiters is hypnosis. If you want to hear a full episode about hypnosis, check out our third episode, Hypnosis on Trial. According to psychologist Jesse Miller, hypnosis is, quote, an altered state of consciousness in which conscious, critical assessment of suggestions by others may be suspended or diminished. In his paper, The Utilization of Hypnotic Techniques in Religious Cult Conversion, Miller makes a clear argument for the ways in which cult leaders may use hypnosis and the resulting diminished capacity to their advantage, especially when indoctrinating new members. Miller's article focuses on the work of Milton Erickson, whose exploration of clinical hypnosis was hugely influential to the practice. Miller goes on to examine how Erickson's principles of hypnosis translate into cult indoctrination and says that laboratory research can only go so far in understanding how people behave in the real world. He distinguishes between trance behavior and the acceptance of suggestion. Trance is when the consciousness is split and faculties like rational thinking and independent judgment are impaired. In this frame of mind, the conscious mind is quiet and listens without critical thought or reflection. This type of hypnotic experience may be implemented in a cult setting during long, repetitive lectures or endless hours of repetitive work without sleep. This state, however, is not enough to ensure that a suggestion will be successful. Really effective hypnotic suggestion, the kind in which the person being hypnotized doesn't even realize that it's happening, is called naturalistic hypnotic suggestion. And it relies on an exchange in which the hypnotist must do three specific things. First, he or she 
must have the subject's full cooperation. Secondly, they must deal directly with any resistant behavior. And third, receive confirmation that something is happening. An accomplished cult leader can use an exchange like this to change a new recruit without that recruit ever recognizing that any sort of hypnosis is taking place. By gaining the trust of the recruit and acknowledging any doubts that he or she may feel, the leader can make subtle suggestions while keeping the recruit in the dark about the manipulation. In this way, the leader can mold the attitudes of the recruit while making him or her believe that the changes are coming from within. Using this method of naturalistic hypnosis, new recruits are converted to the belief system of the cult. themselves intelligent beings that say, well, that's, that's absurd. What's all this doomsday stuff? What's all this prophetic stuff? An interesting point of note is the fact that there are many culturally acceptable groups that use indoctrination tactics very similar to those used in cults, but we don't seem to notice. This is because people are much less likely to recognize these tactics when they think of the group as acceptable. A study done by Jeffrey Pfeiffer found that just the label of a familiar cult or group name made it almost impossible for participants to tell the difference between so-called brainwashing methods and other forms of initiation. In this experiment, participants read a short passage describing a young man's experience being indoctrinated into a group. Some participants were told that the group was the Catholic Church, others were told that it was the Marines, and a third group were told that it was a famous cult called the Moonies. All of the other details of the vignette were exactly the same. The participants were then asked to identify the process that the man experienced, either initiation, conversion, brainwashing, basic training, re-socialization, or religious education. They then had to rate various aspects of the man's personality and how well he was treated by the group on a seven-point scale. Finally, they were asked questions about their prior knowledge of cult behaviors and practices, how much they knew about specific cults, and where their information came from. The results of this experiment indicated that the simple identification of the group in the vignette completely changed how the young man's experience was perceived, and even changed the way in which the participants described his experience. When the Catholic Church was the given group, less than 30% of the participants chose the term brainwashing to explain the man's initiation. When the group was called the Marines, this number rose to approximately 44%. But when the group was labeled as the Moonies, a full 70% of the participants referred to the man's experience as brainwashing, despite the fact that every other aspect of the vignette was exactly the same as the other groups. These findings also revealed that most of the prior information about cults held by the participants came from the media. Less than 20% said that they had had direct contact with cult members at some point in their lives, and even these people were more likely to have merely spoken to a cult member once. This means that for the most part, the media is the main source of negative perceptions about cults. This sensationalized coverage appears to be a major deciding factor in whether or not a group is seen as being a cult or using brainwashing tactics. They are grim reminders of an American tragedy. These are actual bunk beds and purple shrouds from the horror known as Heaven's Gate. What authorities do know is that 39 people are dead. It happened 20 years ago, an act of mass suicide that shocked the world. From the perspective of persuasive indoctrination techniques, this study indicates that negative media portrayal may go a long way to bias people against cults, which may act as a form of inoculation, 
But the more accepting treatment of other groups, such as the Marines and the Catholic Church, may make people more susceptible to their methods. Many opponents of cults claim that one of the major problems with them is their use of coercive persuasion to recruit and retain group members. This coercion is exemplified by the group members having no free will due to extreme influence from the group. On the other hand, some cult leaders have said that the practice of deprogramming or convincing members to leave their groups using persuasive tactics is also coercive. This debate brings up intriguing issues about coercive persuasion and whether or not it's ever appropriate to use it, assuming it is happening in the first place. Some people question whether coercive persuasion even occurs regularly in cult conversion at all. The issue is that these practices are not unique to fringe groups. In fact, many of them are used by military forces, both within the members and during the interrogation of outsiders, and in mainstream religions. By analyzing relevant court cases, John L. Young and Ezra E. H. Griffith came to the conclusion that the distinction between the use of coercive and non-coercive persuasion in cult settings isn't really valid or useful. They claim that this method of assessment doesn't stand up to close scrutiny and is actually very weak, mainly because many of the behaviors of cults mimic the behavior of mainstream religious groups. For this reason, the idea of coercive persuasion is a faulty evaluation tool in terms of understanding the connection between the harm inflicted on cult members and the groups themselves. Instead, they propose that a theory encompassing the idea that each individual is either competent or incompetent when it comes to making decisions about religion is more helpful. Clearly, coercive influence is used in cults. But there may be too much trust given to established groups, like mainstream religions or military forces, while the scrutiny of new organizations tends to be much more rigorous. This isn't surprising, of course, but it fails to capture the similarities between all of these groups. Young and Griffith suggest examining the issue of competence instead. Whether or not a person is competent may be the best way to understand how conversion occurs, because competence is centered on the individual and can be applied in both cults and mainstream accepted groups. The question of free will presents an interesting problem because it is impossible to gauge. The structures underpinning free will are not scientifically measurable beyond the obvious impairments to decision-making, like physical coercion, drugging, or manipulation of people who show clear signs of disorganization, hysteria, inebriation, etc. It's also inaccurate to assume that the major changes in personality or attitude that happen when a person joins a cult, such as adherence to the cult's doctrines, are necessarily involuntary. All of this makes it impossible to argue that coercion and indoctrination happen through the impediment of free will. A final problem with understanding persuasion in cult indoctrination is the fact that most information we have about the tactics used in cult practices is reported by ex-members. Many of these people have gone through deprogramming in order to move past the views of the cult and have been subjected to the opinions and responses of the people who have helped them to separate themselves from the group. Therapists, family members, and other ex-converts can have an impact on how the ex-cult members remember their own experiences, and this can affect the language they use to describe what has happened to them. This means that we can't rely on these accounts in order to know whether or not coercive persuasion has taken place. It is definitely tempting to apply theories of coercive persuasion to cult indoctrination, but clearly the link cannot be reliably made. 
There are certainly instances in which overt persuasive techniques, like hypnosis, are used as part of the recruitment and maintenance of cult members, but as we've seen, there's a lot of uncertainty too. Many types of groups use tactics similar to those used by cults, but these tactics are overlooked. Our understanding of cult behavior comes from the media, which means that it tends to be sensational and negative. Our information about cult practices often comes from ex-members who may be biased against the group, and it's hard to measure the effectiveness of coercive persuasion, assuming it takes place at all, because it is impossible to quantify free will versus involuntary obedience. For all of these reasons, it may be more helpful to examine the particular qualities and experiences that make an individual more susceptible to becoming a devoted member of any group that requires unilateral acceptance of its stances, not just cults. By understanding these personal differences, it may be easier to identify who is vulnerable to specific doctrines, which may make it possible to develop ways of instilling resistance and protective factors, as well as treatment when your loved one comes knocking in robes. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. If you like what we do and you want us to keep doing it, please take a minute to make a pledge towards our Kickstarter campaign. We only have until August 5th and we are counting on you to help us bring season two to life. Plus, we have great prizes at all levels. Get the first episode of the season early, hear your name read aloud, and so much more. Thank you, thank you, thank you in advance for your support. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with writing help from Mario Rivera and original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Please take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out and it helps people find us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Cast, and you can visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back soon, hopefully, with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do. When your emotions control your actions, psychologists find that control of emotions can be gained by understanding the stimulus response pattern. When you have certain experiences, you respond with various emotions.